Well, if you followed with our reading plan over the last week and have kept up with the story of 2 Samuel, you know that 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 17 are filled with violence, subterfuge, and depravity, as well as moments of courage and faith and perseverance. But in the middle of it all, in chapters 13 to 17, there's a character who's never mentioned by name. But we know that he's present. Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, the second son of David and Bathsheba. Perhaps he was there, if you read along, when David's son Amnon was murdered. It said that he was there with all the sons of David, so perhaps Solomon was there when it happened. But Solomon is somewhere in the shadows, watching all the sadness and revolution unfold in these chapters. And who knows how all these early experiences in Solomon's life informed his view of the world. I commend the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to you because in those two books, Solomon writes a lot about the dangers of power and violence and wantonness and riches. And you have to wonder how many of those verses were born out of him experiencing these four chapters firsthand. In fact, I really had to wonder when I stumbled upon this verse a few weeks ago if he might have been thinking of his half-brother, Absalom. It's not in there. I I had put it in there. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says this, The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. You have to wonder, as Solomon watched his brother fight for power, fight to be known, if he even then realized there's nothing that's going to come of this. Solomon realized that everyone will eventually be forgotten. I mean, yeah, your kids and your grandkids and maybe your great-grandkids will remember you. But eventually, our names, our stories, and our accomplishments are going to disappear. A forgotten artifact of time. What's Solomon getting at here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8? It's very simple. We should expect to be forgotten. There will come a day when the most lauded experts, the most voted for politicians... The the best-paid celebrities, the most intelligent scientists, the influencers with the most followers, they will all be forgotten. Now, this isn't a message we hear on a daily basis. We are told to establish ourselves, to make a difference, to rise above, to be all that we can be, to make a name for ourselves. And neither I nor Solomon am against working hard, creating beauty, striving for excellence. But if you are motivated by this notion of being known, being remembered, and being lauded, you are striving for dust. Show of hands. I'm not going to make you talk. Don't worry about that. How many of you think that in two or three minutes' time, you could recount the story of Absalom's life. Who here thinks they could do that? Or could at least give a shot at it. All right, we got it. We got one, two, three, four. All right. Five, do you, you, I'm not going to make you do it, Joe, so you can say that. I don't, all right, so the, 
you put your hands back down. Now, how many of you think in two or three minutes' time, and if you really think you could do it, raise your hand. How many of you think you could tell in two or three minutes' time the life of Joab? Anybody? None of our elders could even do it? Hmm. All right, well, what about uh, our last one? How many of you in two or three minutes think you could tell the story of the life of Amittai? Anybody? Amittai. Okay, well... Or I, I even said his name wrong. It's, it's Ahimaaz. Amittai is another guy in the story. Sorry. Here's my point. All three of these men in today's text fight and manipulate and work so that they could be known. To make sure they weren't forgotten. And though their story is retained in a book that has lasted throughout centuries, most of you have forgotten them. Most of you don't know their story. And the few here who would know the story of Absalom, guess what? The story's not about him, and the story's not exactly glowing. So let's observe each of these men in their pursuit of being remembered, starting with Absalom. So who was Absalom? Absalom, the son of David, was the consummate politician. He was young, charismatic, and good-looking. More than that, he was a leader for the people. So he pressed the flesh slowly over time with the people of Israel, and he turned their hearts toward him so that when he decided it was time to lead a coup against his father, the whole nation just went along with it. And why did Absalom do that? Well, he had some legitimate problems with his father, but there was more to it than that. So look with me in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. You've probably heard it said that anyone who runs for president must be a sociopath or at least a narcissist. Like, who else would want that much attention, really? And here is Absalom. Before he ever had any children, so a young man erecting a monument to his name to ensure that he would be remembered. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? How badly do you want to be remembered when you're gone? And how does that desire for legacy motivate you to do the things that you do, good or bad? Listen, friends, it's a fruitless pursuit. We should expect to be forgotten. Where does all of Absalom's striving get him? Where does all of his diplomacy and deceit and manipulation and violence and power, where does it take him? So he leads a coup. All of Israel's hearts are swayed to him. David has to leave town, and he's only got his most faithful soldiers with him. And there's war to be had. So let's see where Absalom's mindset gets him. Verse 9. The war has begun, verse 9 says, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David in battle. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Jump forward to verse 14. 
Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. The author of 2 Samuel is intentionally drawing out a contrast between the monument that Absalom set up for himself and the monument under which his corpse is buried. Absalom wanted to make a name for himself and was willing to do anything to get it, but where did it land him? It put him under God's curse. We see two curses being played out in this text. First, Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that it's a sign of God's curse to be hung on a tree. Then, uh, he's buried under, under stones, which was a Hebrew sign of cursing, which they did to the kings of Canaan that were killed in battle. So Absalom sought to be remembered, and he is remembered as cursed by God and by his people. It didn't work out well for him. That's Absalom's story. What about Joab? I really think that Joab is the slimiest character in the whole David saga. He often says the right thing and does the right thing, but when he's by himself, he is the most cutthroat, brutal backstabber in the whole story. He stays in power through backdoor deals and literally killing people in the shadows. But his public persona kind of leaves you saying, oh, well, yeah, but he's, I mean, he's not that bad. Yeah, he's fine. So in this story, David is not thinking straight. His son has overthrown him, driven him out of Jerusalem. Absalom aims to kill his father, but David's love for his son, his concern for the one, outweighs his concern for the many. And so the story begins with David telling his faithful soldiers, whatever you do in this war, in this battle, don't kill Absalom. Let's look at it together. Verse 1 and 2, and then we'll jump to verse 5. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, whom we've talked about already briefly, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeroiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. Now jump forward to verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So David gives this order to his commanders. And I think we can understand why from the perspective of a parent. Um, But politically and militarily, this is a terrible strategy. It's so terrible that even God seems to disagree with the strategy. Let's continue reading in verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel. Now, Israel's the bad guys in this story. They're working with, with Absalom, right? So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and note this, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So we get kind of this 
J.R.R. Tolkien sort of sentiment that the forest killed more people than the sword. Even Absalom gets hung up in a tree by his head, potentially by his massive quaffs of hair. But the point is this, even God doesn't listen to David. So the writer of 2 Samuel, which is probably Nathan, the prophet, the writer of 2 Samuel isn't terribly interested in telling us how the forest killed these guys, whether the terrain was very dangerous, whether there were big cats or something or whatever. That's not the point. The point is God has set his face against Absalom and his soldiers, and if he needs to beat these guys with trees, he'll do that. David's plan is a bad one. God knows it's a bad plan. Joab knows it's a bad plan. So how does Joab respond to David's order? Look at verse 10. A certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver... I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab, you would have thrown me to the wolves. (laughs) Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. So Joab knows David's plan is a terrible one, takes matters into his own hand, kills Absalom. Well, when David learns that Absalom is dead, he's heartbroken. He doesn't realize that Joab did it, but he's devastated. And how does Joab respond to David's emotional outcry over Absalom's death? We're going to jump forward now to chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased." Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Joab speak some sense into David's head. It doesn't seem like the nicest thing on the planet, but from a strategic, military, political position, he says the right stuff. And Joab, in this story, seems like the guy guy on God's side. 
God had set his face against Absalom, and so also did Joab. But let us not begin to think that Joab is truly on God's side. God uses Joab in this text for his good purposes, but Joab is not a good man. And what do we learn from him? The urge to be remembered, even for good things, usually results in a rotten soul. What happens to Joab at the end, not of this story, but of the whole story? On David's deathbed, how does he remember Joab, and how does he think of him? On his deathbed, David pulls his son Solomon close, and he tells him this. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jather, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. As David looks back on Joab's heritage, he's a man of blood who is guilty of murder, and he says, don't let his gray head go down to hell in peace. That's hardcore, right? We should expect to be forgotten. When we don't expect that and we pursue our memory and our legacy at any cost, it leaves us not only on the bad side of history, it leaves us on the bad side of eternity, just like Joab. And what's unfortunate is that when we live like this, we pass it on to the next generation. The younger ones around us see our pursuit of legacy. They see us aiming to make a name for ourselves, and that becomes their own pursuit. Look no further than Ahimaaz, Joab's servant. Look at verses 19 and 20 back in chapter 18. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king. This is right after uh, Absalom was killed. Let me run and carry news to the king that Yahweh has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. So when Absalom is killed, Ahimaaz, Joab's protege, sees a great opportunity for himself. He's worked with Joab for a while now, and he sees this is a good chance to get a promotion, right? If I can deliver the news to David that Absalom is killed, that the war is over, that the throne is restored, then the king is going to remember me, and that's going to be a badge of honor. I want to deliver the news, Joab. Joab knows that Ahimaaz is young and stupid. The last messenger that did this back at the beginning of 2 Samuel that went to David and said, Congratulations, Saul and Jonathan are dead. In fact, I'm the guy that did it. I killed him. What did David do to that guy? Had him immediately killed, right? (laughs) Joab saw that happen. So Joab knows David is an emotional guy. Joab knows that David is already wound up. So he's like, Ahimaaz, you don't want to deliver this news today. He will kill the messenger. But Ahimaaz insists. Jump forward to verse 21. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? 
Come what may, he said, I will run. So Joab said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Jump forward to verse 27. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be Yahweh your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, uh, your servant, uh, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. That sucker, he had learned from Joab. So he cleverly tells a half-truth. So he gets all the glory and none of the pain. He'll let the servant guy come in behind take the heat for Absalom's death. He's like, ah, there was a commotion. I didn't see what what happened. So as Ahimaaz's story continues later in, in the book, thankfully he doesn't rise to the bloodthirsty heights of Joab. But what we see in him is Joab's mindset and Joab's pursuit of greatness, even at the cost of his integrity, being passed on to the next generation. We should expect to be forgotten. When we don't, when we allow greatness and reputation and legacy to cloud our vision, what happens? We compromise ourselves, and our souls are sullied, and in so doing, we make the next generation into replicas of our own sickness. But in the end, it's all dust. It means nothing. It's forgotten. You didn't remember these guys, right? And we should expect that. But where's the hope in this story? Listen, we should expect to be forgotten, but we should long to be faithful. When you read uh, a story like this, who's, who's the good guy? David's having a breakdown. Everybody else seems like a jerk. So besides God and the trees, like who am I supposed to be rooting for here? We root for the guy without a name. Look at verse 21 again. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Now jump forward to verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now, if you're not a student of ancient geography, you might not realize that ancient Kush is modern-day South Sudan. So why is a South Sudanese guy working as a servant to Joab? No idea. But this is likely an, an outsider, an immigrant, who is somehow integrated into Jewish society. But the fact is, he's a servant, and his name is never mentioned. He's forgotten. He's you. He's me. He's forgotten like all of us, and that's okay, because the goal of this life is not to be remembered. The goal of this life is to be faithful to God. We want Him to be remembered, not us. 
We should expect to be forgotten. We should long to be faithful. And this nameless man from Cush is certainly faithful. How so? Well, there are a lot of ironic and humorous moments in First and Second Samuel, and this is one of them. So Joab tells Ahimaaz, no way, dude, don't tell David nothing. He killed the last guy that did that. And then he turns to his servant and says, you go tell him. Like, you would expect that guy to say, are you kidding me? No, <laughs> I heard what you just said, send somebody else. But that's not what he says. Look at verse 21 again. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. (laughs) Herein we see the first characteristic of a person faithful to God. Faithfulness looks like submitting to God-ordained authority and responding to God's call even when the risk is great danger. Faithfulness doesn't seek to be great Faithfulness doesn't seek to exert itself over the authorities that God has placed over it. Faithfulness is happy to serve God and to serve God's call in the place where God has put them. Now, of course, we can have discussions about when to revolt against inappropriate authority and when to disobey, but it concerns me that as an American, I feel compelled to even have to interject that. The weight of Scripture says you're not your own. You are not in charge. God has placed you under authority. God has a call for your life. And that's what faithfulness looks like. Honoring and obeying your parents. Even when you're grown. Listening to and honoring your masters, your governors, your elders. And above all, living for the call of God. And all of this when it's potentially hazardous to yourself. This is Jim Elliott losing his life in Ecuador. This is Peter being crucified upside down. This is wanting the highest good. Namely, the glory of Christ being heard and magnified and remembered, even if we are not. And that's the second aspect of the faithfulness that we should long for. Faithfulness seeks to sp- the spread of God's glory through his gospel, above any earthly reputation. So what does our nameless Cushite friend say when he gets to David? Look again at verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The nameless Cushite man, what what is the first word that he says there? It's gospel. He says, good news, my Lord. And what is this good news that he brings to David? That Yahweh has enacted judgment. That Yahweh has done a work of salvation. Do you see it in the text? Look, it's just crazy to me. Good news, gospel for my Lord the King, for Yahweh has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. So this nameless Cushite man gives good news of Yahweh's saving power. And when he asks about Absalom, he says, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. This fellow would have loved the book of Revelation where Jesus returns on a white horse with a sword to destroy all those who oppose God and his purposes. And you may think the Cushite man is too harsh because we don't like to think about judgment 
We don't like ideas like hell and destruction and bloodshed, but there is no gospel without judgment. Our forgiveness comes through Jesus being judged on our behalf on the cross. And the very idea that one day the world will be made right means that God will destroy all those who oppose him and and who are not on board with Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he comes back to judge. So this Cushite man is a solid theologian. He's seeing things from a biblical perspective. He sees the world through a gospel lens. And so he comes to David praising God and declaring the gospel. And guess what? He's never, ever mentioned again. We should expect to be forgotten. And we should long to be faithful. We should long to obey the authorities in the place where God has put us to fulfill the call that he's placed on our lives, to seek his glory above our own, to seek the spread of his name and his gospel, not our own. Above all else, we want Jesus to be remembered. I know we're over time already. Uh, We had a baptism, and so I'm just going to keep going. In our last session meeting, we had a great conversation about our church, about what our purpose is. Our highest pursuit as a congregation should never be to grow. To have a bigger congregation, a bigger campus, a bigger staff, our highest pursuit shouldn't even be effectiveness. Our pursuit as a community should be faithfulness to God and his calling on us regardless of the results. One of our elders said, we're going to get to heaven and meet all these great Christians who served Christ so powerfully, and nobody remembers who they are. Their their names and stories have been lost to the passage of time. Not because of their effectiveness or because of their results or because people remembered their name, but because they were faithful. We should expect to be forgotten, and we should long to be faithful. So the question is, how are you spending yourself? How are you spending your life? faithfulness looks like submitting to God-ordained authority and responding to God's call even when the risk is great. Faithfulness seeks to spread God's glory through his gospel to the ends of the earth, above any earthly reputation. And while there may be no monuments to your name on the day that you die, you will have laid up treasures for yourself in heaven far greater than the dust that men wrestle over here down below. We should expect to be forgotten. And we should long to be faithful. Well, we've only got two weeks left in 2 Samuel. And as with last week, there's a lot of narrative we're going to be skipping over in the meantime. So if you'd like to keep up with the story, which I encourage you to do, I've got a reading plan that you can follow. It's there on your sermon notes. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for retaining the memory of these three men whose stories are worth remembering as a warning to us to not fall into the trap that our world preaches to us every day about establishing ourselves and our legacy and our name. May we be so taken with the reputation and name of Jesus that every other name, and especially our own, (laughs) just seems empty. Enamor us with the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.